Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. Today we are pleased to welcome author Michael Hawley to the program. Mike has written about Jack the Ripper in both fiction and his Watchmaker series and nonfiction, having had numerous articles published in Ripperologist Magazine, the Whitechapel Society Journal, and even the old Casebook Examiner. Mike is well known in Ripperology for being one of the three or four most productive researchers on the life of Dr. Francis Tumblety the field has seen in the last 20 years. Since the publication of Stuart Evans' book, The Lodger, or Jack the Ripper, America's First Serial Killer, which ushered in Francis Tumblety onto the list of contemporary police suspects for the murders attributed to Jack the Ripper. And Francis Tumblety is the subject of his latest book, The Ripper's Haunts, which was published earlier this year by Sunbury Press. And we are happy to welcome him to the show. Hello, Mike. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Good, good. Good. I've been meaning to get you on for such a long time, so it's good that we actually are able to sit down today and Great. talk talk tumble to you. Our listeners may already be aware that RipperCast has released the talk you gave at the uh, RipperCon Baltimore convention, in which you covered a lot of material that we would have otherwise discussed on this podcast. So I'll try to avoid having you repeat everything that was covered in that talk, but hopefully we can touch on a few other things not covered at Baltimore. Okay, great. And uh, give you a chance to expand on some of the Baltimore topics as well, if that's all right with you. Oh, yes. Um, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all of our first-time guests, and that's how did you become interested in the subject of Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders? Well, it started in uh, 2009 when I actually I found out that a uh, Jack the Ripper suspect was buried just an hour and a half away from me in Rochester, New York, since I'm from Buffalo, New York. And so that got was quite intriguing. And at the time, it was perfect timing for me because... I had just finished my manuscript on my very first book, uh, Searching for Truth with a Broken Flashlight, and, and Paula's Press had accepted it, and they were dragging their feet on uh, starting the editing process, and so I was just kind of biting at the bit. And then I found out about uh, Tumbledee through uh, Stuart Evans and uh, his discoveries there, so it was exciting about that, so it was another mystery, and I've always had passion, a passion for research uh, with, uh, because my master's in, is in fossil stratigraphy and paleontology, so I had discovered a few things in that case. So, and also with the, uh, the subject of my first book, I had discovered a few things in that particular world as well. So I just love research, and so I decided uh, to get into this. So as I did it, and you can see as evidenced by my casebook posts at the beginning starting in 2009, I started uh, involving myself with Francis Tumbley, and then a person named Joe Chetcuti contacted me. He is still actively involved in research with Francis Tumbley, especially with me. So anything that I find and do uh, discover, I go to him first and say, what do you think? And then Joe, who has a world of knowledge about Francis Tumbley, he will remind me of this, that, and the other thing. And so uh, it's, it's a great person to be a sounding board on my research. So then, uh, since then also, a couple other, uh, what I call non-Tumblety guys, like Jonathan Hainsworth from Australia. I'm always bouncing things off him. And then ever since my Baltimore lecture, there's a, a fellow Buffalonian uh, ripperologist, Brian Young, that uh, I've been bouncing information off as well. It's nice to have them because... They are uh, kind of like as like you as well, very interested in Francis Tumbley, but 
is he Jack the Ripper or something to that effect. So they still have questions, and so it's fun to ask that kind of uh, those questions with them. So that's kind of how I got involved with it. So you didn't read the Stuart Evans book when it first came out. Um, you how how was it that you were made aware that uh, Francis Templeton was a suspect and had uh, been buried so close to you? Yeah, the, that Mystery Quest episode that uh, had Francis Tumblety, uh as uh, one of the suspects, and also they were looking at Jill the Ripper in that, and so they were interviewing uh, Stuart Evans with that one. So that was the first time I saw that. So I got quite interested, so I decided, well, I want to f- uh, find out if I can find his uh, grave site. And so I searched, and since I'm a... You, do research in genealogy. That's kind of what the the area I went. I discovered where he was buried in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in, in Rochester. Noticed that his name was spelled differently. And since then, other books have said that uh, they made a mistake. But actually, that's probably the original spelling. And that and that his gravestone is a granite gravestone, and it's a family gravestone. So I suspect that it was Francis Tumblety's money that purchased that when he was alive, when his mother died in the uh, 1870s, or even when his brother or father passed away, so that he had purchased that. And then since then, when Francis Tumblety died in 1903, his name was later on put onto that uh, gravestone. So it was kind of exciting to, to find that. So then I went on Casebook and uh, posted that, and so that's when everything started. All right, and uh, Tumblety, in my opinion anyway, is hands down the most interesting of Ripper suspects there is. By far, the Ripper suspect that we have the most information about. Uh, we can pretty much trace his every move uh, mid-1850s up into his death in 1903. Now, most of our listeners will be aware of Tumblety's biography in fact, we've devoted a whole podcast on the doctor when we interviewed Timothy Reardon, who is the author of the book Prince of Quacks, um, on the portrait of Temple T episode several years ago. And Stuart Evans, who you have mentioned and uh, has uh, appeared on the show before. But for those of us who might not be experts on Dr. Tumblety's background, would you be able to go over that for us? Uh, absolutely. One of the things that I've done is um, what I have, my background is to do research in the physical sciences. And what we do is we, uh, we look at the research of whoever else is doing the research, as in not just their conclusions. And so I focused on that. And so Tim Reardon's uh, b- book I was studying as well. And I found a, a few kind of uh, uh, factual errors in there. Most of it is really nice, but there's a few that I wanted to, uh, I focus upon. And so, but, and so some of the things that I've since discovered uh, that I, even don't, I don't even have in my latest book that is going to be coming out later. But in first, uh, which is true that even with Stuart Evans and Tim Reardon, so here's Francis Tumbley, he was born around 1833, 1830 to 1833 in Ireland. And then it was apparently around 1847 when he came, immigrated with some of his family to Rochester, New York, on the coffin ship Ashburton. And so that was like a, uh, it was during the potato famine at that time. So then when he was in Rochester, as a teenager, he was employed as a steward by the self-proclaimed French cures for sexual disease doctor, 
who called himself Lisp- Lispinard. Well, his nickname was Lispinard, but his real name was Ezra J. Reynolds. And so he was uh, a local, uh, kind of a quack doctor, not an Indian herb doctor, but more of a French disease doctor. But he worked in Rochester, but he also continued to work in Albany. So even after he was in Rochester, he would go back and forth. And so, um, but right around 1853, uh, a new name appeared in Rochester, this Indian herb doctor named Rudolph J. Lyons. And that what Lyons did is he had a central office in a major city, and then what he would do is he would go in the uh, outlying uh, uh, rural areas and go to these smaller towns, and he would, you know, advertise in the paper that he's around at these certain times, and then he would stay in that area for a while. And uh, apparently it looks like that uh, Francis Tumbley followed him into the countryside, and then soon after that, Francis Tumbley himself started professing himself to be an Indian herb doctor, but also not only an Indian herb doctor, he, would, he did something else that Lyons did not do. He considered himself an MD, a medical doctor, or that's how he would title himself at. So then when he started going through, um, first he went through Canada and, uh, and you know, advertised. He was doing the, the, the advertising. He was quite notorious back in the 19th century. But this chosen profession of an Indian herb doctor with the MD was kind of an extra. So he was basically an Indian herb doctor on steroids. And so, but he, can, he advertised himself as an Indian herb doctor. And he, just, he would really rake in the money because he was just a, kind of a, a, an eccentric guy, but almost a Liberace type person, very flamboyant. Uh, and he would uh, really bring in the, the, his um, patients and then customers, and so he would uh, um, make a lot of money through that time. So what uh, young Francis Tumblety first did in his chosen, new chosen profession was he traveled through Canada and would kind of, uh, he started through Hamilton and Toronto and all the way to the east towards Canada, uh, stay in one spot and would, uh, uh, you know, uh, advertise and, and open up an office for an Indian herb doctor until he would get in trouble. And then so the local physicians really were getting quite irate with him because all their patients were going towards Francis Tumbley. So he even got himself uh, in trouble in Toronto because of using the, uh, that title MD. So then he went, continued to the east towards uh, Montreal, and eventually he got himself about around 1962, St. John, where he got uh, charged with manslaughter. But uh, after that, once that charge happened, he sneaked, sneaked out of the country and then came to the East Coast. And so he initially went into Boston for a while. Then he kind of established himself in New York City, actually, for the rest of his life. So it's kind of a semi-permanent area. So what he did for those years in Canada, he started doing through the United States. And then so it was pretty much every major city they would go into. And so, but one of the things that uh, is a recent discovery is there, if you look at his advertisements, after the late 1860s, you never see him connected with the name Indian Herb Doctor. And then after that, you never see his name connected to his advertisements. So, and then you don't see him advertise anymore. So there was a change in business practice for Francis Tumbley. And, and then so uh, that's 
one of the interesting things that is the current research that I'm doing at the moment. During the Civil War period, he was based uh, out of Washington, D.C., is that correct? Certain times. He had like a what he called a an over two-year sojourn starting with uh, around, uh, you know, right after the Battle of Bull Run, or maybe slightly before, actually, 1861, and then going to about July 1863 is when he was in Philadelphia, where he got himself into trouble. And then, uh, so he sneaked off into the uh, Buffalo area right after that. And he was also uh, in Washington, D.C., prior to heading towards St. Louis, is that? I'm trying to get the chronology of his time in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War and then uh, being um, arrested in St. Louis. So what he did was after he went to the uh, uh, getting in trouble in Philadelphia in 1863, he went to Buffalo, New York, and that was August time, 1863, where he hung out with John Wilkes Booth. And right after that, he went through to Albany, and by 1864 is where he went. To, uh, he got to St. Louis, and that's when there were two arrests. One was the, the arrest that he had uh, because he was wearing the semi-military outfit, and then eventually when the, the, the military, uh, he was arrested for that. One of the issues that, that came up during his time in Washington, D.C., and then later on his arrest in St. Louis that sent him to the old Capitol prison is I think that you can draw a straight line between that incident and what he is secondly most popular thing that people believe about Temple D is his uterus collection that came out after he was accused of uh, being complicit in the Whitechapel murders. So here's a question I ask practically everyone who I know is interested in Temple D. And it's actually the main reason I'm interested in him isn't due to him possibly being Jack the Ripper. And you mentioned his association with John Wilkes Booth, but the incident for his arrest for being somehow involved in the Lincoln assassination, more specifically the Yellow Fever plot, you don't go into very much detail in your book about. It's discussed at some length in Stuart Evans' book and in Tim Reardon's. You do discuss an incident in which, which was new to me, in which he f- followed Abraham Lincoln's carriage during a procession, yes. uh, riding on uh, horseback directly behind him. And then you introduce a friendly letter of introduction that Lincoln supposedly provided Tumble T before his first trip to London. Right. But yep. then you do also talk about the newspaper reports of his supposed friendship with both John Wilkes Booth and Harold, yeah. as those as if those were absolute facts. Which, over the last decade or so, as you know, that's been debated back and forth endlessly. I tend to believe that Tumble T may have been associated with and even aided conspiracy plotters in the attempt to spread yellow fever to Union troops, which is supposedly what he was held for in the old Capitol prison. I think that during this time period of the Civil War, he may have been a Confederate spy based on his writings, as you've probably read some of my thoughts on this on message boards. 
I think that he the the his writings himself after his release in one of his pamphlets identify himself politically as what would be considered a copperhead and it's also interesting that his preferred cities in the United States and Canada were also hotbeds of confederate sympathizers and generally pro-southern cities is this an area that you have yet to fully study or have you focused on it at all in your research and have formed any opinion about what Tumblety exactly was up to during the Civil War period? Oh, yeah, I actually have. There's a reason why I didn't kind of discuss it as much. Um, by the way, the, the, the research that you've done it is really intriguing, and uh, you can see that you've put a lot of energy in it. Here's what my take on Francis Tumblety was. He was an aggressive narcissist. He was an extreme narcissist, and he could really care less about anyone else. And if you look at not just what he writes, well, when, when you read what he writes, which I do as well, so he's got an agenda to convince people that he's kind of got a bigger heart than he really has. But when you look at his actions and uh, some of the reports, everything on him, it's all about him. Even when he was involved with in August in 1863 with John Wilkes Booth. Here is another very charismatic man. So when they were together, the reason why they were together, I believe, is only because of Francis Tumbley's passion for theater. And, and you can see all through his life, he loved the theater. Even he tried to get into theater, he would bring his dogs into the theater. And so when he was in Buffalo, there's really one big theater in Buffalo, which is there is still today, which I've been there. It's really nice. And that's the one that John Wilkes Booth was at. And so and it wasn't just him. So Francis Tumbley would clearly have been there and been involved in himself there. So I personally see the connection with John Wilkes Booth at that time because of the, the theater. Now, with Harold, let's say it is true that it was Harold. There's a reason for that because Harold... Actually, uh, Harold, all, he was a, uh, a pharmacist's assistant. So that's what Tumbledy wanted. Tumbledy wanted a young man. And Harold, see, Harold was this, uh, did the same thing to John Wilkes Booth as what Tumbledy loved his young 15-year-olds. He would always pretty much start uh, at the age of 15-ish and kind of decoy these boys away. And uh, here's Harold, a young man who you could see looked up to those early 20, early 30-year-old men. One example is John Wilkes Booth himself later, but uh, earlier. But when Tumbledy was, there is a report of Tumbledy being at one of the hotels, and John Wilkes Booth was there as well, if it was true. They were competitors, actually, for attention. And so I don't see Tumbledy hanging out with Wilkes Booth after just a, a little bit because... Tumbley always had to dominate his whoever he was with. He had no friends, and any kind of friends he had, and you and you can read that with uh, uh, Neil Story's articles that he discovered uh, with uh, Hall Kane. It was all on Tumbley's terms, and so if it wasn't on Tumbley's terms, Tumbley didn't have anything to do with that person. So here's young Harold, who uh, was uh, Tumbley met in Washington D.C around 1863, and by 1864, Tumbley's back in New York City, and that's where we hear that he was with Harold. That would be the perfect reason why Harold would be there, because Tumbley wanted some young man 
maybe even for sexual reasons, but also because he was involved with, he, he knew uh, how to get the pills for Tumblee and all that. So to me, I see almost a coincidence. I, I just, when I, and even when he claimed in, the, uh, in Montreal, when he, they wanted him to kind of go, uh, you know, get involved with politics, it was all really a, a, a scam. So I don't, I just, I don't see Tumblety as a person that would even want to be involved with politics. He, uh, to me, every, every action he takes, it's all about him. And if he can't control the person, then he's not going to be with that person. So I get, you know, it's so funny because he's always right there at the right time or the wrong time. So in me, I don't think it matches Tumblety that he would be involved. I mean, when you have him so familiar with a city like Montreal, which was at the time considered the northern capital of the Confederacy, right? he is arrested in St. Louis for wearing a phony uniform, let's say, at a time when that city was under a Union garrison, and it leaned heavily pro-Confederate, uh, in which the the trading of phony union uniforms and phony uniforms in general going back and forth was very prevalent. You could have gotten shot for masquerading as as a soldier when you really weren't, just simply because of the, in the Kansas-Missouri border wars at the time, that was one of the main disguises of the pro confederate missouri bushwhackers folks like Quantrill and frank james and bill anderson and so for him to get arrested for that offense in that atmosphere of that times very unlucky and then you have him in new york city which uh, leaned confederate baltimore certainly leaned confederate and dc leaned confederate so and then, and, then, my- and then he's fingered for being involved in the yellow fever plot well, let me let me kind of. I have something about that as well. The uh, think about uh, his Tumbledee's um, in 1903. He bequeathed to young Mark A. Blackburn a uh, couple, few thousand dollars. So, of all his young men that he's had, that particular one he was he favored, as evidenced by him. This is the only young man that he bequeathed any money to at the end there, and how again how coincidental. And this is uh, Tim Reardon talks about as well, is that from when he went to New York City and in the early 1870s that, or I'm sorry, 1860s, that uh, that's the time where he had Mark A. Blackburn. And then in in that case, we have, um, he even uses Blackburn as uh, another doctor. So he's connecting the name Blackburn at the very same time he's, he's now charged with this yellow fever thing with the Dr. Blackburn. Uh, I think that's also a, a, quite the coincidence. Right. Or, or you could look at it as Colonel Dunham, Stanford, Conover, frame up is the way s- some might look at it. I mean, when Blackburn, the Blackburn, the real Blackburn of the yellow fever plot was a pretty prominent, and he later became, I believe, a senator from Tennessee. Mm-hmm. He, he was a right. well-known figure. For, for Tumblety to have been mistaken as Blackburn and to be held in the old Capitol prison for the length of time he was, he was there even after the Booth conspirators had been executed. 
this might be getting too inside baseball, but the role that Stanford Conover played in the Lincoln assassination, Stanford Conover was one of the main associates uh, and, and investigators for Judge Holt in trying to establish this big, grand Confederate conspiracy against the Union. And the Yellow Fever plot was a big part of that. He was also a, a journalist. He would write anonymous newspaper stories. Um, yeah, reptile journalists, yes. That, uh, in which, some of which did, did have elements of truth to them trying to bolster this idea of a grand Confederate conspiracy. And Conover, uh, the way the story goes, is he ended up getting eight witnesses to have uh, to swear affidavits to Judge Holt, saying that they could implicate certain high, high-ranking members of the Confederate government in the conspiracy, not only kidnap the president, Lincoln, assassinate him, spread yellow fever, and all of this. And I happen to believe that Tumblety's situation that he found himself in the old Capitol prison is directly related to, to Conover's habit of falsely accusing as many people as he possibly could. Then you have Conover, Sanford Conover is the alias that Charles Dunham used, coming out with a story in 1888 about the uterus collection of Tumblety's. Ripperologists who argue that Conover's history, how they'll say, oh, well, uh, he's a notorious liar. He can't be believed. Nothing that Conover slash Dunham says about Tumblety in 1888 uh, should be believed. But I happen to disagree. I believe that Tumblety being framed for for either, if if there's evidence of him being involved in the yellow fever plot, but that is the connection between Dunham in 1888 and Tumblety's uterus collection is the old Capitol prison arrest because they did know each other. Well, I think a couple things. One is that uh, the yellow, uh, as I said, if you look at Tumblety, he doesn't care about anybody but Tumblety. So look at his actions again. And so here, and also what's interesting is. With I use him Charles Dunham because that's what uh, I research him as Charles Dunham. But, but the, the foremost expert on Conover Dunham is Carmen Cumming. And watch what uh, Cumming says is that basically of all that information, there's a ton. He was not only a double agent, he was just an expert at baiting people. And so what, what is happening at, uh, as during his reptile journalism, he has an agenda. And then even today, a lot of these, uh, we don't know who the agents were in the Civil War. And in the case of uh, Cumming, he says he believes that probably Dunham was uh, uh, hired by someone from Washington in, in the North. And so then he, Cumming also says about that 1888 interview, he calls it a strange interview. Why? Because when you look at Dunham's history... After the uh, Lincoln assassination, he no longer is really involved with that kind of stuff. He focuses, and, and by the way, while Dunham was during, in the Civil War, look when his kids were born. His kids were born at the time. So he still was raising a family in New York, and kids were coming out. 
So this, and so now he goes back to New York City as a lawyer, and that real estate lawyer, so if you look at how that 1880 interview came about, was it wasn't Dunham looking for the reporter. That New York World reporter, uh, there were lots of New York World reporters, and that particular reporter was stationed in New York City. And so if you look at the November 24th to the 27th articles, you see that New York City lawyer going through downtown uh, Broadway Street. He first interviews people uh, near the, uh, the hotels uh, because that's what the first articles that Francis Tumblety was a suspect said that he was at the Fifth Avenue Hotel and some of those places. So that reporter went there and started asking questions. And then because Tumblety was in trouble with the law, just as his article says, he went to the lawyers. And so who, so who does he talk to? This guy named William Burr. William Burr was also a real estate lawyer. Same place, same city, with Charles Dunham. Now, Buff, uh, or New York City at that, 1888, was the size of Buffalo, New York. And one of the uh, friends that I have in Buffalo, New York, is uh, a lawyer from downtown. And anybody from Buffalo knows the, the Salino and Barnes firm. And then so... I asked him some questions on, do you know all the other lawyers down here? And he says, oh, absolutely. It's a small community. And then so that William Burr, he first person that, re, that reporter goes to is William Burr. And that William Burr knew st- some information about tumbledies during the Civil War. And lo and behold, an anomaly occurs. That New York City reporter goes to New Jersey across the river to, re- to interview Charles Dunham. Why? Charles Dunham didn't work in New Jersey. He worked in New York City in that same place. His office, Charles Dunham's office in 1884, was right next to William Burr's office. They knew each other. So it wasn't Charles Dunham looking for that New York City reporter to give him information on Tumblety. It was the reverse. That reporter was looking for Dunham. So Dunham was approached. So so some of the... Uh, I So when I've heard people say that that uh, Charles Dunham, for some reason, was trying to get either vindictively get back to, uh, at Tumblety for something that happened, or was doing it for money. Um, it just doesn't fit the facts, as in that reporter was looking for him. And then you can see William Burr saying, you, you know, this Charles Dunham, he knows a lot of stuff. And so, and lo and behold, here's Charles Dunham, tells him a story about when he was a colonel. Was he officially a, a colonel? Well, it was, didn't have to be official because he definitely, you can see that he was kind of raising that Cameron, uh, uh, you know, when you ever raise a, uh, you know, a battalion like that, you're already going to be considered a colonel. And so at right, that it was time. It a volunteer, um, a volunteer regiment. Is right, what, was right. Like Colonel exactly. Dunham was given the uh, papers to organize. Right. So, um, but he never actually organized it. And so, exactly. and so, but he it, was there at in, and so and you can see it right at that very time. That's if they're going to get, uh, if they're going to collect anybody that's going to be skilled at any kind of uh, spy espionage stuff. Right at that time, that's Dunham was in Washington D.C. There. So interestingly, though, is that I was telling you before, people talk about the Charles uh, Tumblety's uh, uterus collection, but there's no. Uh, re- record of him having anything. Well, if you look at what Charles Dunham said, he didn't really say uterus collection. He said Tumblety gave the officers a, a, a medical illustrated lecture, and he had his anatomical uh, museum. 
And his favorite part were the uterus, you know, uh, collections of different women of different, uh, you know, uh, social status. So then that was around, it was in, uh, no, uh, let's see, about sometime in 1861. Even though Dunham said that he first met T Tumblety right after the first Battle of Bull Run, although some of the uh, anti-Tumblety guys were trying to say that November 1st had to have been that because Tumblety said that uh, he, uh, came, uh, Tumblety himself came to Washington, D.C. when, uh, when General McClellan became uh, com uh, the commander in charge. But actually, that's not what Tumblety said. He said when, when Mc General McClellan became the uh, general of the Army of the Potomac, that happened in July of uh, 1861. But Tumblety himself was there before. If you read his autobiography, and it was Dunham that's the one that said that he met Tumbley just after that. But that's not when the illustrated lecture was. That illustrated lecture could have happened any time in 1861, even in November 1861, so I have no issues there. But what happened was, just a month or two before Tumbley came, started his two-year sojourn in Washington, D.C., a, uh, a New York City reporter complained about Tumbley's pictures of anatomical specimens over his office on, on Broad Street. Here it is a, here's Tumblety with images of the anatomical specimens. And then to see that after, when he was hanging out with John Wilkes Booth in uh, 1863, after his two-year sojourn, then a reporter uh, was teasing or talking about Tumblety's illustrated lectures, medical lectures with thespian emphasis. Tumblety was doing illustrated lectures, but there was a reason why he was doing it, because he had no medical diploma, and he's trying to convince the General McClellan that he was a surgeon, and the only way he could do it back then in the, in the 1800s, the, all surgeons had their own anatomical collection, and it was kind of, it was kind of like a certificate to show your credibility, and what Tumblety was doing was, just like all surgeons did back then, is he was giving... Uh, in this case, Tumbley was giving the officers an illustrated medical lecture to convince the general that he's worth it. Now, Tumbley wasn't going to be a surgeon, but just think, that would be a coup for Tumbley. Here it is. He does not have a medical diploma, but the United States Army now uh, is, uh, has him as a surgeon. That right there is your own medical diploma. And that's what Tumbley tries to do, if you look at his autobiography, he tries to get heads of state, uh, and he says his certificates, even under a category of certificates or diplomas, what he's talking about is when, let's say, the, uh, the emperor or even uh, uh, of France and even uh, of uh, Prussia were uh, approved of him, like, working as a, basically as a surgeon. So he would have the approval of heads of state to be considered a surgeon. So what he was doing in Washington, D.C., was he was trying to convince Lincoln and also General Clellan of that so he could put that, give, you know, have, be considered an M.D. Because soon after that, as I said, you never see him uh, connect his name with Indian Herb Doctor after that. Right. I honestly think that your research into this particular aspect of what Colonel Dunham claims about the 
uterus, which has been popularly known now as the uterus collection. Right. You you pretty much, uh, in your book, in my opinion, put that argument to rest because you bring up um, several other newspaper reports completely unrelated to the Dunham um, story that does describe Tumblety having glass um, model of the circulatory system and certain things like that that just provide more evidence that this is something that he actually had. Right, um, right. The fact of the matter is, is it can, can be shown that Tumblety did have some kind of uh, anatomical exhibit that he would carry around with him and display that right, would have right. fake blood running through fake arteries. And, and so you got to take what Colonel Dunham says as mostly the truth. Right. The way I look at it is, the if the reporter didn't find Dunham, we would not have known about that uterus collection. It was the reporter looking for Dunham. Right. And it, so Dunham wasn't even going to be discussing that. And that's one of the things. That's why even Carmen Cummings said that was a strange interview. And so in that case, we would not have known that. All we would have known is maybe eventually we would have had that article showing that Tumbledy had images of anatomical specimens in New York City. At that time... Here it is, Tumbledy was, it's kind of intriguing that Tumbledy has, uh, you know, what you talked about, that glass case of the, 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 the blood flowing, even during World War II, he had that. I'm not World War II, but the Civil War, that's what that Navy officer said. And that to be, uh, one of the things is he had a really big, keen interest in blood. And uh, if you read his, uh, his uh, autobiographies, he talks about a thing called Kyle, which is the nutritious component of blood. So, yes, he was really big into any kind of botanical, herbal, uh, you know, herbal kind of things for help curing, but it was the blood that transported it. So, central piece to, to health for him was blood flow. That's why he had that, uh, the circulatory system in there, and that's why he had to know so much about the circulatory system. But also, again, here it is, a man that uh, wanted to convince the general that he knew what he could do. So he, he, know, he knew even in New York City, before he got to Washington, D.C., that since he didn't have a diploma, he's going to have a medical lecture. He's going to have to convince the general's officers and uh, medical people that he knows what he's doing. So he better know where to go and what to find inside. And so at that time, I can see him gaining some experience and having a little bit of anatomical knowledge at that time. Mm-hmm. Now, here it is. Now... If it's true that he had this favor of the uterus collection, that is, and, you know, that's intriguing as well. So, um, so right. continues, yeah. That's what I think is one of the most interesting aspects of his life. There's a, still a mystery out there to be solved as far as, in my opinion, as far as what Tumblety was really up to during the Civil War. There's still a lot of research. And one of the things that I've noticed with researchers that really do find, collect, and find a lot of information let's say, articles on, on Tumblety. But what happens is, uh, and not in your case, but I'm talking about if, if there's a kind of a perception that he was not a suspect, then you're not going to be looking in certain areas. And so, um, like in the case with him with the Civil War, I mean, we've got now maybe look at the subject, what if Dunham was not trying to be vindictive against Tumblety? That was just kind of a you know, a luck of the draw that that happened, how would that kind of uh, take the research? Even though 
some people have claimed that when you look at Charles Dunham's report that he was lying, you know, there was no truth. But think about what he wrote. One of the things that even uh, Tim Reardon talks about, even this H Street, that there's no reason why he would have been on H Street. Lo and behold, who else was on H Street? General McClellan. That's exactly where Tumbley was. And then the complaint, the claim that um, the, uh, if you look at Tumbledy, he was at, if you look at his 1863 advertisements, he's at the Willards Hotel. Absolutely was. But Tumbledy, when in 18, or that also 1862, by the way, so February 1862 to 1863, he would be in the Willards Hotel and a couple other hotels like that. But in 1861, that's not where he was. He, and also, but he was there. I mean, uh, he was definitely in early in 1861 because uh, if you look at it, even an earlier 1881 New York, uh, Rochester Daily Union Advertiser article talks about Tumbledee, who got in trouble in 1861, so they report in Rochester, that he visited someone in the 13th Regiment that was at Fort Corcoran. And when you look at that 13th Regiment, and then Tim Reardon kind of just kind of brushed it off, didn't write about it, but what happens is it, that the, uh, the, that particular regiment, that 13th Regiment, was on June 3rd to October 1st, 1861, was at Fort Corcoran. But from October 1st, 1861, they were no longer at Fort Corcoran. They were still in the Washington, D.C. area, but then they were part of the Martindale's Brigade Porter's Division, which was at a different place. They were at the Hills Hall in eastern Arlington County. So when Tumbledy visited, this was 1881 that this article was about, talking about Tumbledy visiting that 13th Regiment, it was in 1861. So at that time, he would have been on, he, he was not trying to be an Indian herb doctor. He was trying to be that surgeon. You see absolutely zero reports. He did not, when he was there, he did not advertise because he didn't want the general to think he was an Indian herb doctor. Once that general by December 1861, kind of ignored him. What did he do? He went back to New York, came back, and then he started his mass advertising uh, as an Indian herb doctor, and he made uh, lots of money with those people. But in 1861, he wasn't. So he was trying to follow General McClellan around, who had his office and home on 8th Street. That's exactly where Tumble right. wanted to be. Right, and, and um, who else uh, had a house on 8th Street? Um, oh, yeah. All right. That was the location of Mary Surratt's boarding house. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll kind of, okay, we've talked about the conspiracy theories, uh, um, Civil War. <laughs> so we'll just leave, leave that part at that. That could that. be another two hours. <laughs> I know. Um, but, um, okay, but it does lead into, on this whole question also of Tubble T being a woman hater. I believe Dunham does make some comment, him expressing a dislike of fem- uh, the female sex um, in his interview, does he not? Right. As a matter of fact, Tim Reardon in his book, he actually claims that Dunham was the man in his December 1 article that uh, started that. But uh, what I demonstrate there's three i have three different uh, articles before december one that they talk about uh Tumbledee's hatred of women i mean right. pinkerton said it and then uh so and then uh, so it shows that tim was wrong in that case so then now what happens is what um i think wolf vanderlinen talks about and brought up that the the term woman hater is a euphemism for homosexuality 
Right. Um, and it, yeah, yes. I was going. Yeah, that was one of my questions, and it's being discussed. I don't know if you uh, still read the message boards, but it's being it's still being discussed. Like as of this last past week, the double but meaning I'm not of the fr- that, right, right, the double meaning of the phrase "woman hater." One one being its literal meaning, and the other being a Victorian euphemism for homosexuality. One of the posters on on JTR forums said that. Uh, and this goes to your point. Uh, one of the posters says, uh, the day that anyone provide, and I'm quoting, the day that anyone provides one example of the most well-publicized suspect, sick or excluded, even being discourteous to women or failing that one example of a woman on either continent stating anything which indicates Tumblety was even so much as rude to them, then maybe I think there was an outside chance that he was more than a man who distanced himself sexually from women. While on page 81 of your book, you give this example. Uh, from the Liverpool leader in 1875, there comes to us a tale of a decent woman found from the Isle of Man who sought his advice respecting a bad leg. He told her it was due to the immorality of her parents, but would cure it for three pounds. She declined, whereupon he, Tumblety, ordered her to get out to uh, get out her legs, or all uh, and, and all, or else he would kick her out of his office they mean other young women and unmarried have fled in alarm from his premises and say his language and conduct suggested danger 1875 this is from 1875 so this can't be considered oh one of the awful stories that everyone started to tell about tumble tea after he was implicated in the whitechapel murders exactly this is a, a newspaper article from a good 13 years previous to the Whitechapel murders. Now, that so particular, there, and there's just one example of that. Now, right, and also that particular person that made that statement, it's really a moving the goalpost technique because what'll happen is, is when you can make a claim like that, and now you're, uh, you all you have to do is kind of discount that particular article you said, but that clearly shows not only other young women, but unmarried. This is exactly the per- people that Tumblety would have hated because those were the ones that decoy his favorite 15-year-old boys. And then there's a few more articles as, as well. Right. Not from New York City, actually from, from England that the, we've got instances of uh, his hatred of women. Not, not, and again, well, I think one of the nice things is that second euphemism, there is a, uh, a statement in Sexual Inversions, which is 1897. This is predates Little Child's Comments. And here it is, Little Child's Comments, which I'd like to talk about too. But it says right in there, this homosexual said, Even the women's physical beauty has little to no charm for me, and I often wonder how men can be so affected by it. On the other hand, I am not a woman hater. Here's a homosexual saying he's not a woman hater. This is at the very same time before Little Child made a comment, and it's right at the same time. So, so basically, that woman hater right there, that euphemism right there is not for homosexuality. It's for misogyny, hatred of women. So back then, hatred of women. So just like your point you're saying here is that in the case of Francis Tumblety, was it used for homosexual or was it used for um, misogynist? And then so, I mean, we've, we, all, we have a couple other articles where even in... Uh, the, the Buffalo uh, Courier, it was December 7th, 1888, but this man with his wife was in London October 1888 during the murders, 
and he said that he uh, Tumbledy went into the uh, the you know horse-drawn carriage with them, and when he realized that there were women, he said. But what surprised me was his actions when he found out that I was in the company of ladies. I mean, then right. you know his actions were so strange, and so it's like you can see with the, I mean the preponderance of the evidence really. I mean, it shows that. Tumbledy had a hatred of women, and the, that same very person that made that comment, he, to this day, thought that little child said the term woman hater when he, in his little child letter, and he never did. How do you square your idea that he hated women with the fact that females made up a significant portion of his business? Oh, that's, I mean, if you look at it, money is the most important. It's all about Tumbledy. And then so what he's trying to do, you know, how he raked in the dough. I mean, if you, even when he died in 1903, when you convert that, that's still like $3 million that he had on his deathbed. So priority was his money. And, it, so, and it's kind of your idea that, the, that it wasn't all women he hated. It was mainly uh, young and young single women who might be uh, tempting away young, the young men who he would prefer to associate with because there are accounts, I believe a landlady um, of Tumblety's, you know, has said that she never had any problem with him and this, so is that kind right. of how, how you're looking at it, is that like he, he didn't hate, hate all women but it was a particular type of women that he hated? Well, especially especially it would be, I mean uh, when he, in his uh, letters to Hall Kane when he made a comment about the uh, Chinese prostitutes, the, the women, and then he kind of equated them to cattle. But like, you know, anything, he, uh, here's, here's an example of when he talked to his, uh, uh, his McGarry, who was a young man that, uh, you know, was, uh, still had, you know, positive feelings towards Tumble, even in 1888. And then it says that when asked, about Dr. Tumbley's aversion to women, McGarry said he always disliked women very much. He used to say to me, Martin, no women for me. He could not bear to have them near him. He thought all women were imposters and, the, and often said that all the trouble in this world were caused by women. So here it is, by the way, one of the uh, uh, serial motives uh, is that blaming a specific group of people. And here's this Tumbledy saying that all, you know, the, the trouble of this world is caused by women. And, that's, uh, and he even said to uh, another one, he evinced a great dislike for women and constantly spoke of the, the gentler sex as the curse of the land. And that was December 4. Um, so you could see that probably, I think you're right, but again... He was the one, if you look at his articles, he says he could tell you what's wrong with you by not even looking at you, by just talking to you. I'm sure he didn't have to touch anybody, and he even claimed that he didn't have to touch anybody. So, uh, that he de- you know, women were definitely, you know, a moneymaker for him. So, I, I don't see that as a kind of a big conflict. Okay. Now, let's uh, talk about Tumble T as Jack the Ripper. A lot of uh, ripperologists have some issues with, uh, you know, that they can agree that he's a woman hater. They can agree that he had a, like myself, um, agree that he uh, uh, had a collection of uteruses and or anatomical specimens that he liked and, and yada, yada, yada. But actually right. fitting him up for the Whitechapel murders, um, uh, a, lot of, a lot of us look at that as a bit of a stretch. 
Tumble T, as we know, was over six feet tall. A lot of newspaper reports either describe him as a very big man or even stout, which might indicate like a little on the fat side. Whether he was dressed flamboyantly when he would go slumming in Whitechapel in 1888 or not, let's just leave that aside. But in your book, when it comes to the eyewitness reports, you discount, um, and and I'm going to use a specific example of uh, the Catherine Eddowes murder, you discount Luenda's having seen Eddowes and you throw doubt uh, that the person seen at the entrance of the church passage leading into Mitre Square was even Eddowes at all, um, based on the timing of the sighting being so close to the time of the discovery of the body. Is this simply because that the person that was described as being with Eddowes, who the witness, Luenda, uh, later identified her clothing that that person just does not match the known description of tumble tea because there there's a there's a human error as you know that often affects uh detectives on a case whether it be armchair detectives a hundred years later or the actual police officials on a murder case that they'll reject certain items of evidence and eyewitness sightings and rule out victims etc because they don't fit what their preconceived notions of who the perpetrator was or the kind of person right. he was like. Right. And and this type of error that suspectologists make and and as well as the police officials, like I said, make uh, derails their investigations. It clouds their judgment. So right. Right. So I want to. Uh, so I'm interested in in how you square um, like and, and I, that. Uh, section of your book um, did uh, kind of, to me, sh- reflect that type of. Um, well, the yeah, right. The, because uh, you couldn't, because you couldn't insert Tumblety into the shoes of the person that the three Jews coming back from the club witness with Catherine Eddowes. You therefore say, well, it probably wasn't Eddowes that they saw, right? There's a couple things. One is my first book's called Searching for Truth with a Broken Flashlight. This is exactly what I talk about. Even though it's a different issue, I talk about all human beings. Nobody's a computer. All human beings. When you, when you, new information comes into a, your brain, it's attached to a somatic marker, which takes it to an emotional place, either the positive or the negative. So if one does not believe Tumbledee is, uh, let's say, the Jack the Ripper, when I make a comment... It's going to go to the negative side. So that's everybody, including me. And one of the first things I say, and this is, I always say, um, I am susceptible to it just like everyone else. And that's why peer review is designed to not allow um, um, opinion to get into there. So for me, when I have, you know, let's say, for example, uh, Paul Begg and, uh, and also Martin um, when we were at uh, the Baltimore, um, the uh, Baltimore, the uh, Baltimore lecture, when Martin Fido, we had some beautiful conversations. And so, for me to even convince some of these top people, it makes me feel uh, uh, pretty good about it. So, for myself, and when I look at this, the uh, it's the same thing with everyone. And but the, but we got to keep in mind though. Uh, 
that nobody, none of the witnesses were witnesses to the murder itself. And that's the first thing is nobody saw the murders. And so there are eyewitness counts of that. And even Lewin, uh, Joseph Lewin, he admitted that he did not get a good look at the woman. But then he admitted that he didn't see them walk to the crime scene as well. So, and then in the dark area, um, so uh, in that case, could that have been the, the murder? Well, that guy was shabby looking, what, a five foot nine, he got a, what, like a red neckerchief around or something like this that he saw. But could that, I mean, that might not very well have been Eddowes. Uh, and then in the case, so what happens is there, there's some suspect on that here. So for me, when I look at this, is the first thing is I see is that could, nobody, again, nobody saw the murders. So absolutely, just like everything is for me, is if, now, if Tumbley was a murder, now, I even told Martin this, I go, I'm not 100% sure that it's going to be Francis Tumbley. But what I do know is, is when I got involved with this, is I could see that Stuart Emmons nailed it uh, and I was just amazed at Stuart Emmons' research. And I, I thought, it, and then I find out that he's, you know, his background is law enforcement. It's not research. And I was just so impressed with how his research was, not just what his conclusions were. You know, after I watched the show, then that's when I started, you know, got his book. So then, but then we do have, let's say, an eyewitness testimony of, let's say, uh, that you don't see much. I don't know but, why you don't see uh, but, this much. But, but before you uh, go into eyewitness testimonies of that, that people that do resemble Tumblety, and I know they are, um, back to the Eddowes thing, um, when, you, when you, I mean, in your book you do, you do um, suggest that, the, uh, that Eddowes and her, her murderer were, were not the uh, people seen at the entrance to Church Passage. Um, but then someone who might believe that someone like Jacob Levy is the Ripper right, um, right. would counter that by saying that uh, Lewanda's statement and then his misstatements or reticence to, to um, say what he really saw not, not only should not be discounted, but that um, and the subsequent reluctance at the inquest, yada, yada, is circumstantial evidence that he or Joseph Levy, who he was with at the time, recognized Jacob Levy as that person seen with Eddowes. Um, and that because he was, because Jacob Levy might have been personally known to Joseph Levy since they were related right. and they were both butchers with shops really close by to each other. So the writer of, of a suspect book, you know, so, so. So basically, I'm, I'm saying you, you see what I'm kind of saying is like oh yeah, and, and um, actually, uh, saying, someone who I, might I who might believe Joseph uh, who might believe uh, Jacob Levy is the Ripper would would uh, would consider the the sighting of Catherine Eddowes as uh, as more evidence that bolters their suspect as opposed to someone who might see as Tumblety as the Ripper uh, could be seen in the same circumstances, kind of cherry picking through the evidence that exists and then brushing away everything that doesn't fit. Well, you know? And that's the, you just said the right word, cherry-picking, because I, I talk about that a lot in my first one. I have no issue with people pushing for that because you must. I mean, 
Uh, if there's any kind of indication, because we don't, I mean, nobody's, just like Stuart Evans said, nobody's really going to find out who the murderer is unless some, I mean, it's just, a, it's, but it's part of the research. Someone has to do that, and I have no problems with that at all. But now, if it was only that particular case right there that makes me, you know, that that would suggest that Tumbley was the killer, or or then uh, then that would be kind of quite cherry-picking. So what I've done is, and this is one of the things that Paul Begg had made a comment about my book, is I have a world of information. I, I try to put out everything in there. And then, of course that, uh, let's say, for example, Tim Reardon's book, a lot of people are trying to say that his is very um, uh, benign, as in middle. He is not trying to uh, cast a suspect. That's exactly right. But what happens, though, is he definitely tries to cast an anti-suspect, as he, time and time again, tries to discount Tumbledy, minimalizes that. And that's kind of where I find the mistakes at right. with that. So, for me, but I still... In the world of research, I, uh, I personally want someone to find some connections. And so if it does that, I'm, I'm all for it. So I have no problems. I actually like that because, again, you know, that's what we're doing. We're, trying, we're enjoying this, trying to figure out all of that. Right. And you, you did mention that there are a few newspaper accounts um, that describe individuals that – uh, in in a couple of cases, it could very well have been Tumblety uh, acting suspiciously. Uh, one of the things about Tumblety that comes up in uh, in some Ripper discussions is uh, whether or not um, if he was the murderer. Or do you, and you 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 mentioned this as something that you had discussed at the Baltimore conference with Fido. Right. And, um, uh, could he have been working in tandem with it, with someone else? Like, okay. like uh, you believe that that's a possibility that Tumblety might not have been the actual one wielding the knife, but that he could have had a, a partner, um, or, well, or because then you get into the Stride murder, and you know, right, and, right, almost with and, uh, Israel Schwartz's uh, kind of uh, eyewitness testimony about that lips that Lipsky issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the only issue I actually would say that that's definitely a possibility because, uh, you know, Tumblety had quite a bit of money, although he, uh, you know, it, it just depended on what he wanted to use it for. So I am not uh, uh, averse to any kind of possibility that that happens. Do I see any evidence for it? That's another issue. But it's, by all means, if I find some, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to search for that. Okay. So that particular person that was, uh, that um, the Elizabeth Stride case, the, the person that was smoking the pipe, could that very well have been Tumblety? Well, Tumblety was a huge cigar smoker, and back then cigars were big in, in London, so that would kind of counter the idea that that would be Tumblety. Okay. And we'll c- continue talking about the victims here. In your book and in your Baltimore lecture, you go through different modern-day serial killer profilers and the traits that they will list out as being some of the the things that might motivate a person to be a serial killer. And and in your book, you uh, match some of those qualities or motivations with Tumblety. Um, Yes. But what you don't do in your book, and it's something that I, I think about, is when I look at how the victims were discovered, being all 
all of them generally uh, being found lying on the ground in in the posed, I would say, in a similar fashion, with right. their with their legs hiked up, with their clothing pushed up above their stomach. All all of them were were basically found just that way. With the and Mary Kelly is of course a, a, an extreme example of that. And when you study other serial killers, um, and in particular the Yorkshire Ripper, who got his moniker be- just simply because his attacks and the way his victims were found staged and posed resembled so much the victims of Jack the Ripper, right. you get into the same serial killer profilers that you use um, in your book uh, that discuss the motivations of the killer, you get into those same particular Keller, who I believe you you mentioned, I think that's his name, right? Um, specifically, su- suggesting that the type of murderer that would leave their victims posed like that. Mm. And they uh, basically... Uh, would consider those heterosexual sexual right. serial killers in that the the offender in in the Jack the Ripper uh cases um were deliberate would have been deliberately posing the body to satisfy this preser- perverse sexual fantasy right. now what what's your opinion on on i would assume that you don't believe that the victims were posed and and that's that would be your answer because if they were then it would point to a heterosexual killer and and not a homosexual one and and i think you're right the uh uh, when you when you put it that way as well the what i do say and i even wrote it in my book i believe that uh if the uh jack the ripper was a sadosexual serial killer it was not francis tumbley because uh, if you were sadosexual and you're homosexual just like jeffrey dahmer you're your focus is on on men, and then so. Uh, but my point would be, is when I first saw the the, the Ripper murders, I didn't even I didn't see any of the, uh, this myself was any attack against the let's say the uh, the sexual organ, the vagina, or anything like this. It was more in the abdomen, and then uh, so so and then I looked at it in the what the two people that I talk about, and this is one of the things we're talking about is like. The uh, Dr. Brent Turvey is the one that looked at the the murders, and he saw a hatred of women, anger retaliatory, and then and also non sadistic, so not sadosexual, and then uh, but then also uh, it wasn't just him; it was also Dr. William Eckert is also a one that saw anger retaliatory and non sadistic. But uh, uh, the display that you were, you're talking about, the way I see it is, if you look at the first, let's say, let's assume right now that the Jack the Ripper was, it was the canonical five. You know how we have, you know, di- mm-hmm. different arguments that they weren't. But let's assume that first, that if you look at it, I see the first four more of a Fender MO as opposed to signature. Meaning he only had minutes with these people. It was outdoors. And I don't believe that he would have had the time to display. I believe that his agenda was less that more of harvesting, and so if you look at the uh, if you look at you know of course uh, uh, the Nichols murder, 
didn't have time. I can see that you know the n- n- neck was cut deeply, didn't have time to do anything because he was interrupted. And also, in the case of the double event murders, the very first one, Elizabeth Stride, you can see still another deep cut, and then he had to leave because of the interruption. But those others, there was some harvesting going on. And then, so I see more of a harvesting thing, and I don't see any focus on the, you know, the, like the vaginal area. So I can see the first four more his business was to get done and not get caught. And so there was just a lot of time. I mean, he had to get in the dark. He had to get all this stuff and he left. But where I agree with you is Mary Kelly was indoors and he had hours with this woman so he could complete his agenda. Now, it's almost the case, you can almost make a case that the first four, if they were indoors, if he had time, they could have been completed. And so they're almost like... uh, pre-Mary, I mean, they would have been Mary Kelly's in a way. But here we have, we have this woman. And if you look at that woman, and this is one of the things that I talk about in the book, is look at the picture of that woman and then look at the picture of an anatomical Venus that was popular at the time, especially in New York City in 1888. But it was popular in New York, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, about 14 years earlier and before in London. But the anatomical Venus is a woman that's on display at one of those dime museums, uh, uh, reclined on the back, and then they're kind of uh, in a sexy outfit and exposing, you know, let's say the internal organs, but the, the breast cut off. And so if you look at that, the anatomical venus is really, if you look at where that came from, is from the reclining venus. And the, the reclining venus was in every single... I mean, if you look at any art galleries in Europe, they had reclining Venuses as, you know, displayed. Especially the National Gallery of London. They had the Rokeby Venus sitting in there. And there was a reclining Venus sitting there staring in the mirror held by her son Cupid. So that was, and that Venus, Venus was the Roman goddess of physical and heterosexual love. And so it was all about heterosexuality with with the Venus. And so here it is. That's what Tumbley hated. He blamed women for the curse of the, they were the curse of the land. And if you look, he was he believed that women, especially prostitutes, but women, uh, would be decoying young men to their in, intended lovers, older men. And so he hated women that did that. Even that eight, the that Liverpool article in 1875 kind of hints at that. So then here we have the anatomical Venus is basically the, that goddess being mutilated. So to me, I see anatomical Venus, which is a mutilation of the goddess. And that right there is uh, quite the statement for me to see. So I do believe that was a display, but more on uh, that case, more right. anger retaliatory. Now, could I be wrong? Of course. Right. But... Um, well, the 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 problem we have is that when this is the way I look at it, and 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 I'm going to read read a little bit of what they say about posing because I want to go back to this point, and that's that when we have a series of murders uh, that are perpe- that are believed to be perpetrated by one offender, whether it be in 1888 or in modern day times, um, there are. Similar traits that each of the victim, you know, that each of the victims um, have in common, uh, right. which which lead which which 
modern modern day uh, in, investigators will will point to as being um, uh, evidence Sign- of what uh, sig- yeah it's signature signatures what, right what, what, offender what, signature what would be um, motivating the murderer now right right um, and, and so so when you use in your book, some of the, these uh, profilers and, and serial killer investigators' ideas to point to the motivation of what what could have compelled Tumblety to murder, you also have to take into account, I mean, it, it, in my opinion, I mean, okay, I'm going to use the Yorkshire Ripper as an example. Right. He, uh, he was able to uh, leave his victims, essentially, uh, with the exception of Mary Kelly, of course, right. in essentially the same... Uh, a very similar way to, to how some of the victims in the Ripper case were found, and and he had this essentially the same amount of time. He was disturbed on a number of occasions. He only had maybe five minutes at the most. But what the profilers and, and people who investigate serial killers um, say, and I want to read this to you if you indulge me for a minute. It's, they okay. say that the act of leaving a victim's body. In an unusual position is a conscious criminal action by an offender either to thwart an investigation, shock the finder and investigators, or give perverted pleasure to the killer. A subsequent research paper by former New York Police Department homicide detective Vernon Galbraith read, uh, refined this analysis and found that there are three types of body posings in murder. And you'll see that the last one might include tumblety, but I'll go on. Um, because they give a, an actual percentage of the cases that they study. So the first one that he mentions is fantasy, wherein an offender poses a body to satisfy a perverse sexual fantasy through the manipulation of the victim's body, including posing and propping. And this would include uh, what we see in the Nichols murder and the Chapman murder and the Eddowes murder which are very similar to what we see in Sutcliffe's crimes, um, as well as far as, like I had said, uh, propping up the victim's legs, pushing the um, the clothing up above their body, abdominal stab wounds and stab wounds in the area of the vagina. They say that sadists rely heavily on fantasy and ritual to obtain satisfaction. At 71%, sexual mutilation of the body or body parts was the common motivation. So here you're talking about what would be considered a heterosexual necrophilic serial killer who would uh, prob- who would probably be uh, attempting to masturbate over the body of the victim. The second one that they say is retaliation. Offenders pose a body out of anger or as retaliation. The offender is using staging or posing as a weapon to punish and degrade the women. Typically, the posing consisted of spreading open the victim's legs, inserting objects, or exposing the breasts to further degrade the victim. That's in 22% of the cases that they studied. Right. Um, and then staging is where an offender would pose a body to stage the scene to make it appear like a sex-related murder. The offender is consciously attempting to mislead and thwart the police investigation by making the murder appear to be sexual, when in reality the murder was based on interpersonal violence. Well, what they're considering as interpersonal violence is that if the offender knew the victim and he wanted to make it look like a random sex 
uh, murder when the motivation was actually something completely different. And they say that that's at 7% of the people uh, that they studied. So if Tumbledee was to fall into one of these three categories, if the victims were posed, which I happen to think they were, he would have been in the last category as far, uh, as far as making it possibly look like the victim was a victim of a sex murderer, uh, when he actually was not, but uh, from what I gather, all that point, all, all these points are 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 moot, basically because you think it was just a happenstance that they were all found that way, and that organ harvesting was the goal, right? But, so it, yes, yeah, so it's not really, yeah, happenstance as in, and remember, he only had few minutes with those people because he knew outdoors. He was right, you know, the beat of those police constables were right there, so he had only limited time. So, but I do agree with you with Mary Kelly. And um, on to Mary Kelly, there, there's some question as to whether or not Tumblety was free to even commit the murder of Mary Kelly right. um, on, in the early hours of November 9th. Right. How, where do you stand on that issue? Obviously, you, you believe oh, that he was uh, free on Right. Months. And it, if you listen, uh, a researcher, David Barrett, really kind of, he found this out, and it was really nice, is that what's happened back then, it, uh, and I had a long, a really good conversation with Martin Fido about this one, too. But the, uh, uh, and this also shows anger retaliatory, too, uh, with Tumblety, but on November 7th, he was arrested on suspicion I mean, he was not arrested on suspicion. That predated it. That November 7th arrest of Francis Tumbley was for gross indecency. And so when you get arrested for that, what happens is you have to go in front of the magistrate and you get a remand hearing. And the remand hearing is, are we going to keep you remanded in jail until you have your committal hearing? That's the purpose of that. And so what happens is uh, one week later, he had his committal hearing. On uh, November 14th, and so what did the the magistrate do? He sent it up to uh, the uh, Central Criminal Court, to the judge, but also he demanded, you know, he's going to have another hearing. Uh, But in this case, he allowed bail at the committal hearing. Now, it's the committal hearing that the prosecutor, the prosecution side, He's going to hear all the uh, information, all the, the evidence against Tumblety. At that remand hearing one week earlier, at best you might have the same amount of information. The judge or the magistrate is going to have the same amount of information. At worst, it's going to be less. So there would not have been more damning evidence at that remand hearing. So if the magistrate gave Tumblety bail on November 14th committal hearing, why wouldn't he have given him bail on the remand hearing on November 7th when the case was not probably likely not as strong at that time? That, re- that was only a remand hearing, too. So, so the evidence basically supports the fact that he was released within 24 hours. And also, Tumblety would have been quite angry at that time. So, so uh, the way, I mean, and also, here it is. After November 16th, the 18th, the 20th, Three Scotland Yard officials considered Francis Tumblety a suspect after this. So it was Sir Robert or Robert Anderson uh, with when he contacted those U.S. chiefs of police that 
that he considered Tumblety a suspect. Andrews, when he was in Canada, made a comment about Tumblety. Now, of course, he said that he wasn't the murderer, but they still wanted to question him. Well, they still, why would you still want to question him if he was in jail when Mary Kelly was murdered? And then, uh, also, then the, the third one was Little Child. And so uh, later on, we found out that Little Child thought that. So three Scotland Yard. There's no other suspects that you have find three Scotland Yard officials comment about. So the uh, and so after Mary Kelly was murdered. So uh, that just does not make sense to me. That if he was in jail during the Mary Kelly murder, why did those three Scotland Yard officials even consider him a suspect afterwards? But again, it doesn't matter because. Really, the, uh, you know, the British law shows that you have to have a remand hearing within 24 hours, and then he had the committal hearing, and it, it really makes sense that he would have had uh, bail, opportunity for bail, at least. As we all know, Tumblety fled, and another one of the debates that is ongoing on the message boards is whether or not Scotland Yard sent Inspector Andrews across the ocean to the United States with the express purpose of uh, locating Tumblety. And that's a area that, for some reason, I, I'm not exactly sure why, but it, it seems to be a hotly debated topic. Um, right. and, and in the appendix of your book, you do address that issue. Can you go into a little bit of that with us? Right. I think it's a hot topic because if that's the case, that means Tumbley was a suspect. But now we know, tum- I mean, um, it- even Paul Began made a comment that we now know that Tumbley was a suspect. Was he Jack Ripper? Well, that's another issue. But was he a suspect in the eyes of Scotland Yard? Yes. Right. So now, um, now, do I think that's the primary reason? It could very well have been exactly what it was in public. I think more importantly was who was in charge of Andrews at the time, and that was Robert Anderson. He was the, the person that right around that same time he's contacting U.S. chiefs of police uh, about information. Not now. Here's one of the misconceptions that it was for handwriting samples, but it was the uh, the uh, um, chief of police in San Francisco that offered the handwriting samples. It was Anderson. Even when you look at uh, when he talks to the uh, chief of police in Brooklyn, it's he wants all information. So it's all information that he's looking for, not just handwriting samples. Because there's one argument that the handwriting samples, that they can use that during the uh, gross indecency case. So it really wasn't handwriting samples. That would be any, all information includes that. So, but it's, uh, so then what I found out was that, uh, well, uh, David Barrett again found that the, um, for the gross indecency case was postponed till December 10th. And so you had to go to December 10th until you find a warrant out for Tumblety's arrest for gross indecency. So why the heck would Scotland Yard, per little child, would know that Tumblety was even in France uh, around November 20th, um, you know, weeks before that? So the only person, and this is one of the discussions that you and I have had before, is with uh, uh, Sir William, Mel- or William Melville that was stationed in, uh, in France at the time. We have uh, a case where it's be reported December 1st, even before Tumblety set foot in New York City, when nobody knew for sure that Tumblety was on the Libertania, Lebr- that, that here it is, it looks like a, a London source said that uh, Tumblety has escaped 
and got into France and you know uh, to Havre, and lo and behold, December two, it was confirmed that that report was correct. So why the heck would Scotland Yard even care about Tumbledee if the case was postponed till December seventh? They were busy people. Gross indecency was not a big issue, unless they were concerned about Francis Tumbledee being a suspect for the Jack the Ripper case, and then lo and behold. We have those articles that talk about, uh, from two separate sources, competing newspaper sources, that there was a, a uh, British or a, first, uh, an e- English detective in, uh, hanging out at the, you know, outside at a bar uh, watching for Tumblety. Now, uh, so in that case, what I talk about in my book is the evidence to support that that was actually a, a, a Scotland Yard detective because there's one article that talks about that. But also there was a case where we had a, a, uh, a uh, Scotland Yard sent a message to a Scotland Yard detective in New York City. So first the claim was there's no Scotland Yard detectives in New York City, but here is when we look at a, a different uh, author discussing the Irish Fanian issue, uh, Dynamiters issue, talking about Scotland Yard sent a cryptic message there. They were assuming that message was for Le Caron, uh because he was going to be on board a ship leaving back to England soon, uh, early December, that, that they don't know what that says. It could very well have been Francis Tumbledee because it was the exact same time Tumbledee arrived in New York. So we have a New York detective, uh, detect, uh, Scotland Yard detective in New York, and then we have Andrews that sets foot in Canada, likely to do the extradition thing, but there's an article showing that, you know, his orders were changed or added to, at least. And uh, one of the things, though, is uh, when you look at the Canadian authorities, even though uh, Canada was a sovereign country, they were still under the British Empire. So they were still connected to Scotland Yard. So Scotland Yard clearly did not want anybody to know that one of their suspects was, uh, had sneaked out of the country uh, under their grip. So they would not have wanted anybody to talk about it. But, of course, in New York City or in Brooklyn and in San Francisco, they don't have a lot of control over those people. Now, that the, the Dominion Police in Canada, they actually had control over. And Sherwood was the... A.P. Sherwood was the man in charge they would have contacted... Uh, in Canada, who had a close relationship with William Pinkerton and also the Scott United officials. And then, uh, and so that three-way relationship they had back then was um, kind of a strong relationship. But it really kind of connected everybody. So to me, it's less about Andrews, more about Anderson and that Scotland Yard detective that was in New York City. And now at some point, um, Tumblety gave the interview. Doesn't that indicate that Scotland and and I don't believe Scotland Yard ever uh, issued a statement of any sort after Tumblety's interview was published. But it is around the same period of time that Tumblety gives an interview, interview, admitting that he was arrested for complicity in the Whitechapel murders. Um, gives right. the excuse that it was because he was wearing the American slouch hat that right, right. Um, was uh, that you know was supposedly being, uh, you know, every American with an American hat had been arrested at the time. Um, Doesn't that indicate that at some point Scotland Yard must have dropped him as a suspect? 
Um, because yeah. you, you never see... Obviously, he wasn't afraid of being rearrested by any um, Scotland Yard officials uh, hunting for him in New York City. And Scotland Yard doesn't ever come out with any statements saying, oh, hey, you know, that that's our man who just right. gave that interview. Well, Where well, can a couple we things. One him? is... Remember that nobody really saw the murder, so they really didn't have anything on Tumbledy for uh, the murders. So there was really nothing to extradite Tumbledy for. So what they were trying to find anything, and they clearly didn't find anything, but they definitely did. The uh, you know the, there are some reports of that, like the one that's from New Orleans that report that uh, that the uh, there's a Scotland Yard uh, detective stationed out of New York City running this investigation and so for a while you could see that they were continuing if they could find something i mean of course they knew where he was he was in the united states eventually you could find him if they had anything on him but they clearly didn't find anything on him but it was really after let's say the alice mckenzie murder in july 89 that scotland yard still were many in scotland yard were convinced that that was a ripper murder well, Francis Tumbley was in New York City or in the United States. So that, that basically uh, took him off the radar. And so after that, it was, he was out of you know, London's hair anyway. So it was like, uh, I, I think that was really the case. That was the time where Scotland Yard said it could not have been. Now, do I believe that Scotland Yard was convinced it was Francis Tumbley at the time? I don't, and that was probably the other reason. They, were, they considered him, you know, like uh, everybody has issue, takes issue that, uh, that Francis, they don't think Francis Dudley was considered the prime suspect at the peak of the murders, but he was really hot up there because of, you know, the, the actions, their actions, t- having a detective come to, uh, to uh, the United States, three Scotland Yard officials talking about it. So, but the, of course they had their doubts, and so here it is. Uh, that and also the case was the murder stopped for at least a while until July '89. The murder stopped. They even had Everline off the case. So uh, and then uh, and that Cleveland Street scandal is quite very tumbly like too. That's quite interesting. But like the uh, so I think that it was the McKenzie um, uh, murder that Scotland Yard decided. Uh, you know that's definitely not tumbledy. But then, um, then later, you know, Little Child is the only one to ever mention Tumblety. So, right. later on, um, when you know, and Hainsworth goes into this in some detail, as you know, it's it appears that Tumblety was dropped because he isn't the preferred suspect of Anderson. He's not the preferred suspect of McNaughton. Um, he's not the preferred suspect of Aberlane. You know, right. Um, just the inconvenience of Tumblety being in New York City, I mean, isn't isn't enough. It does appear that there was no consensus made, of course, about who the Ripper really was. But it does seem that the the officials, all on their own, drew their own conclusions, and some like Swanson and and uh, Anderson might have had more information. But regardless of that, none of them named Tumblety. It's almost like he he could have been a flash in the pan suspect. That little t- child just happened to recall. Right? Well, what's interesting was when a little child did that. That was at the peak of the murders, and you can see even in little child little child's letter that once 
his people spotted Tumblety in France, his business back in the Ripper murders was now secondary again, so it wasn't like hot on his... He was not involved with Tumblety, except that part. So... I'm, I'm, what I see in that, tumble, that letter is when Sims comes to Little Child, or vice versa, that it was, here it is, he, uh, Little Child is surprised that nobody mentions Francis Tumbledy. And some of the people have, there's a lot of misconception about that Little Child letter. Here's when it says, when Little Child says, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind a very likely one, doc, uh, was Dr. T. And then he starts about talking about the American quack. That here it is amongst the suspects, and he says a very likely one. And then later on, he talks about although a psychosexualist, I mean psychopathiosexualist, basically homosexual, he was not known as a sadist, which the murderer unquestionably was. But his feelings towards women were remarkable and bitter to the extreme. A fact on record. That effect on record connects to the bitter, as in hatred of women, and not homosexuality, because. Little child never said, uh, uh, you know, would, um, the psychosexualis, psychopathia sexualis was not part of that fact on record thing in that case. But, but if you look at this, if you believe that the uh, little child is saying he was not a suspect, or I don't believe he was because he goes, because the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, murderer unquestionably was a sadist. That doesn't make sense with the first sentence because he said, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one. Because when you see that, he didn't say, although a psychosexual, psychopathia sexualis subject, he was not a sadist. He didn't say that. He says he was not known as a sadist. That's a, that's a different thing. If you notice that he says not known as a sadist, meaning, well, like, sounds like he was, he just was not known as a, in, the, in the record. That matches, but amongst the suspects, and to my mind, a very likely one. So, so what I see there, to, to make sure that both, I mean, his whole entire discussion about Tumblety to make sense, is you have to take it that way. If you don't, then there's this confusion. It's a conflict. It's not logical to say that a little child did not think Tumblety was a significant possibility of Jack the Ripper because of that first sentence. So especially when you can take the, the psychopathia sexualis line as not known as a sadist, as opposed to not as a sadist. Well, and, uh, and isn't Little Child um, also, in when, he, when he says that about Tumblety, relating it to the context, doesn't he earlier in the letter discuss uh, Harry Thaw? The later, yeah, later in the chat, yes. So he, so, and, and, and so... Th- in his treatment of Evelyn Nesbitt, his wife, which was at that time making front page news around the world. Um, so I think in the context of, of little child speaking of tumble tea as a, whether or not he's a sadist or a psychopath sexualist, he's leading into a discussion of the thaw case. And so a lot of times I think that that little section of the little t- child letter is taken out of, out of context right. um, because he's kind of, uh, you know, he's using Tumble T or, the, or Jack the Ripper um, in comparison to how it was known, it was well known how Harry Thaw treated women. Right. Um, that, Like I had mentioned, your, your section on Andrews and the hunt for Jack 
the Ripper Tumble Tea o- over in the United States comes as one of the appendix of uh, in your book. I was wondering, were these uh, the appendices, were these written especially for the book, or are you reprinting? Reprinting, um, yeah, those were articles the, uh, that had appeared previously. I wasn't sure. Right, yeah, those were both articles. What it is is those were both articles that I wrote. I think for both of them were Ripperologists okay. magazine. And then what I did was they weren't directly connected to how I was talking about it, but they were kind of interesting things that kind of indirectly connect that because of like uh, Andrew's case shows some things. So some of that information I did put in the, the, the other part of the book, but I figured that those particular articles would be interesting for readers to read. Right. And another topic you cover, as well as the Andrews one in, in your appendix, is the the uh, story about Tumble Tea being in possession of Annie Chapman's rings right? And uh, at, at the time of his death. And this is the idea that the brass rings Tumble Tea had in his possession upon his death were actually Annie Chapman's wedding ring and keeper rings. Right. And um, we see this brought up uh, quite often um, when usually it's when newbies I use that term, you know, um, yeah. uh, bring up uh, when they discuss tumble tea. So in this section of your book, you counter arguments that Tim Reardon made in, in Prince of Quacks that these rings couldn't have belonged to Chapman. Right. Um, right. And many ripperologists consider the topic of Tumble Tea having Chapman's rings as just a myth anymore mm. these days, pure and simple. But you argue that the rings belonging to Chapman shouldn't be so quickly dismissed. Can you go into that for us? Okay, uh, a little bit. That, um, And I think it was with when you look at uh, the Tumble Tea's possessions on his possessions, he always had with him something that signified that he was part of the higher society because generally he was in the slums and he would get caught and be in front of somebody. So he had two different things. He would have letters from prominent people and then he would have his, his, lots of his wealth in his pocket to show that I'm, here's proof that I'm not just, uh, just uh, a nobody. I'm a, you, know, you should treat me as someone in the higher society. And back in the 19th century, that, there was definitely a, a difference in treatment. So lo and behold, he has these um, uh, pair, uh, this cheap uh, brass rings, and so, so that was the 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 big surprise was wow! Look at this, Andy Chapman had her rings taken, and so the first thought was is well, look at that. Well, a couple interesting things about that. One is uh, what when Tim Reardon made a few comments about uh, I I wanted to point out that those were mistakes that he had. Um, I read off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly what, but I showed that the people that they use were the appropriate people uh, to look at those those rings to make an assessment. And then, um, so... Right. The, and you, you also make a good point in, in, um, in countering Tim Reardon's argument by the value of the rings that Tim Reardon used to gauge later on appraisal after Tumblety's death, well, the value of the rings that Tumblety supposedly had in his position, those figures were given by Tumblety himself. Mm. So I thought that was a good point you brought up in that um, when he had had his rings stolen and various things, or when his, you know, when he, when prior to his death, 
when when uh, discussion in newspaper accounts uh, brought up the value of his rings, those were always figures that Tumblety had invented himself. Right. So right. Um, so he was exaggerating the value of his rings. Right. Um, and 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 then at the time of his death, those same rings were, of course, like not worth two thousand dollars, but maybe worth seventy five dollars. Right. So right. I, I thought that was a really good point. The um, other thing I wanted to make a comment about was is that at that very same time, while that's happening, he when he did not want anybody to know that it was him for that month before he died. He uses the alias Frank Townsend, and the only other time he ever used that alias is when he sneaked out of the country of England. That's what he used. There's no other case where he used that alias. There are, he used other aliases like Smith or something like this, but it was it was kind of how ironic that 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 was the case. Maybe the most, if he indeed was Jack the Ripper, that would have been kind of quite the uh, the significant moment. And then he uses that same thing. And, of course, in his pocket, which he never had before, were, you know, these, these rings that don't match the others. So that's kind of the, the connection I have. So were they? I, I don't know. But I, I'm, what I'm saying is you can't just completely discount them because they didn't look the same. So from my perspective there, what I showed is they could very well have been. But, again, were they? That's another issue, too. I mean, but uh, you just can't discount it. Uh, that in other ways so before we wrap it up i want to bring up one more uh, item that's not in your book but something that you've said um on message boards uh, a few times and that has to do with the discovery of tim reardon's of the photograph of tumble tea that right um uh was affixed to one of his pamphlets right which we all kind of take for granted that this is a picture of tumble tea in his prussian uniform it's something that we all recognize you know right as something of tumble tea but you have some doubts whether or not the photo of the man in the prussian uniform really is tumble tea can you correct can you explain some uh your reasoning behind that for us Right. If you see, uh, one of the things, if you compare the 1865 autobiography with the 1872 autobiography, uh, the, the one that has Tumblety in kind of a, a print that he claims that he got, uh, that um, portrait was done in, in Germany. And that, and not, you know, so Reardon's one is the year before 1871, but this is 1872. When you look at those autobiographies, there's one really distinct difference between the two is upwards of 20-plus occasions in the 1865 autobiography, he makes the word, he, he talks about being an Indian herb doctor or the term Indian herb doctor. Look at the one in 1872, and it's absolutely zero. There is no comment about Indian herb doctor. So it was at the time when he was stopped connecting himself with the Indian herb doctor. And so what he was trying to do is just what he did try to do in the Civil War is if he could have a head of state consider him um, a, uh, a quali- qualified surgeon, that would be his diploma, basically. And under that chapter of diplomas, that's what he has when he went to – he claimed that he, in 69 when he went to France talking to the Emperor Napoleon III that, and that he kind of joined his team. That's what he was doing. So here, what he needed to have – was an image of himself in that which kind of gained his credibility. So here we have the previous one, 1871, 
It's a photograph. Now that uh, there are some issues with the title. Uh, one of the things that surprised me when uh, in Reardon's book that he never wrote the entire title, the 1871 title. And then when I found that there's actually a reason for that, which I'll probably later discuss. But like uh, when you look at that photograph, it was only that year. Then 1872, he has the image that he kept on the 1889 and 1893 autobiography, is the same one from the 1872. So then in 1875, or actually, I'm sorry, 1873 in, in England when he got in trouble uh, with a young man, uh, a, a boy named Carr, and that the reporter said that his autobiography, had, he, he matched the, the description of that image of him in the Prussian uniform it's not the 1871 photograph that Reardon found, or Reardon found. It was the 1872 portrait that he had in Germany. So then what happened was, is then here's Neil Story found uh, another photograph. And to me, when you look at the two photographs, they're of two different people. And if you look at the photograph that uh, Neil Story has, he's in the exact same position as the 1872 German portrait. Exact same position as it. And then if you look at little, uh, you know, parts, the ears, and also look in the eyes, there's a part, you know, where the eyelid kind of comes down that you see that he's, that's uh, very similar to the, the Neil Story's discovery and that portrait from Germany. Now, here it is. At that very same time, uh, Mark A. Blackburn was helping him out in his New York City office. Next door to him was a uh, photography place. So I think because uh, that, uh, I don't know if that is actually Mark Blackburn, but I can see at that time, Tumbledy wanted to portray himself as a younger man. But apparently it didn't work out, or what, he didn't like it because he didn't keep it on there. He wanted to have it. Now, he was planning on going back to, to Europe. And when he went back to Europe, when he was in Europe, in Liverpool, because he got in trouble, he was uh, having Hall Caine recreate his uh, autobiography. It was a, four, a separate one. It's a separate European one that he was doing that uh, they talked about afterwards. And that's what uh, Neil Story's the, the, the letters show. And then uh, so he was going back to, to London. And when he's, got, when he's there, he want, you could see that he wanted to have an image of himself uh, that from 1869, when he was in France, then he, uh, the French you know, emperor gave him this credibility. So that would be really good to have when he goes to England. So, uh, but the, uh, so that's kind of where I, I go with that. So I, I don't think the two photos are the same. And I, I'm pretty, and I'm actually, you know, for other reasons too, that um, Neil's story will eventually come out with. But like uh, the, that, uh, that, I mean, we do know that that those art that photograph that Neil Story had came from the letters from Francis Tumblety. So uh, I just don't see see those two as the same photo. Some people might think they are, but I don't see that. No, a lot of people don't see it as the photo of the same man. Um, they've even gone so far as to you know do analysis of the earlobes and things like that. But a lot of people uh, choose to believe the Reardon photo over the Neil Story photo. Um, but it, it is interesting, and it does make more sense that he would have been an older individual than the one that's published in Tim, uh, that Tim Reardon found. And, right. So. And eventually, 
Brian Young is going to bring out his theory on that, which I'll wait for him to do it because he's got an interesting theory on that as well. So wait for that one, Brian. <laughs> right. And, um, and, I, and you're convinced that it's – and I don't want to put you on the spot, but um, do you have a photo of Mark Blackburn? Uh, yeah, on the 1871 Reardon Discovery Autobiography. <laughs> but no, no other photos. To, uh, so for, far, I've searched. For but, comparison um, purposes. I mean, I guess we can try to go into the families and then find, uh, you know, hey, your great-great-grandpa. <laughs> so, but at the moment, I haven't found any. Right. So if somebody does, that'll be a, a really great thing. Anybody that would like to try that. <laughs> well... I want to thank you for being on the show today, Mike. And it's been said by more than one person that you've written one of the best suspect books in quite some time. It certainly uh, thank you. Yeah, it certainly collects an enormous amount of information on Tumble Tea and is a must-read for anyone interested in this suspect. Uh, the title of your talk in Baltimore was Amongst the Best Suspects, and that's kind of how I see your book, as not necessarily aimed at proving that Tumblety was the Ripper, but more of a re-examination of the evidence against him, and you attempt to smash a few myths. Right, exactly. And yep. the book does go a long way in redeeming the suspect candidacy of Tumblety that many Ripperologists believed was dead and buried after the publication of Tim Reardon's books. So, mm-hmm. so um, I commend you on all of your research. And, and like I said, everybody should be uh, going out and reading The Ripper's Haunts if you don't already have a copy. And thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you very much. And that was the author of The Ripper's Haunts, Michael Hawley. It was said upon the publication of this book a few months ago by the book editor of Ripperologist magazine that this could very well be the best nonfiction Jack the Ripper book of 2016. And as we get closer to the new year, I believe that there's a good chance that that prediction will hold up. So I encourage everyone interested in the suspect Francis Tumblety to obtain a copy of The Ripper's Haunts. And I'd like to again thank my colleague for being on the show today. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by the website casebook.org, where you will find nearly 100 roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders, as well as other aspects of Victorian and Edwardian British crime. If you have any comments or questions about our broadcasts, feel free to comment on the message boards at casebook.org, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter simply by searching for RipperCast. As always, I'd like to thank everyone who listens to and supports the show, and we'll see you next time.